Uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here this evening, honored to be able to address you men um, with the time that we have, and I have grown to appreciate the Iron Men ministry that happens here throughout the year, primarily, I guess, the, the summit, since that's the, uh, the main gathering. Um, I've been in Kansas for about 10 years, and um, I think it was probably the second or third year that I was in Kansas that I had a a friend in Wichita said, you need to check out this conference in Emporia. And I was like, where's Emporia? I mean, that's not even a city that resonated with me yet. And so we kept driving in the middle of Kansas. I hadn't been this direction yet. And I was like, is there anything out here? I don't even know where we're going. And we ended up at this conference with this huge parking lot and all these men. And I was just, I was both excited and floored. And I've enjoyed it ever since, just the networking and getting to know um, other men from not just the Kansas area, but different parts of this, uh, I guess, part of the country, and um, enjoy the fellowship, and I've, I've really grown to, uh, to appreciate this, not just individually, but we have a group that we always bring from our church that looks forward to it every year, so I really just want to commend all of you that are a part of it, not just in maybe preparations and, and planning, but even your presence, just being at these different gatherings and, and supporting that ministry, it is a blessing to many of us outside of Flint Hills Bible Church. So thank you for, for uh, ministering to us in that way. Um, one of the things I've kind of childishly looked forward to at the conference every year is something you sort of alluded to, Dave, the sign-up. I, I watch that counter now every time I sign up because I know, like, I don't know if this is a long-standing tradition, but the, you know, the thing you do where you give out the books for, like, the first and the last or whatever. So when I went to sign up this week, um, I looked at the counter and it said there are 666 left. And I was like, I was, I'm not a superstitious person, but I decided to wait and let somebody else take that just in case there was some, some weird voodoo trick that came with that. So um, I did register. But anyway, thank you for uh, Iron Men. Um, Ryan, you totally changed my entrance into this text with your testimony, and I really appreciate hearing your story. Um, one of the joys of being um, a pastor is you, you get to be on the front seat a lot of times of, of hearing stories like that, not just in, in gatherings like this, but um, in membership interviews, baptism interviews, uh, counseling. You get to hear stories of salvation. And um, God never does it the same way. And I, you know, he, it doesn't matter the sins or the, 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 the compilation or snowball of sins that exists that might bring someone to Christ. Uh, his grace is, is big enough to cover them all. And I just, I always just am marveled with the power of God to transform a life and continue to transform a life and stick with somebody who, uh, who struggles uh, with, with sin and, and continue to give them assurance and give them support. And so I really appreciate your testimony and, and just telling that story of how God brought you to himself. I, I said it kind of changed the trajectory of how I want to get into our text this morning, um, or not this morning, this evening, which is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, I would like to encourage you to turn there. Uh, I want to talk a little bit tonight about uh, the diversity in the church and uh, alluding to this idea a little bit of, of different ways that we come to Christ. You know, when Christ saves us and brings us into the church, the family of God, there's not one of us that is like the other one. It's not just about our stories of how we got there, but it, it, it's all about what gifts we have, what talents we have, what abilities we have, what's our personality like, what, where did we come from? And all of us have something completely different and, and probably very unique from the person sitting next to us. 
And every church you go to, whether it's a church of 10,000 or, or, or 10 people, uh, there, is, there is always a diversity of what God has put together in the church. And, and it's really only God and the gospel that can make that diversity work towards unity and work towards uh, making disciples and work towards uh, missions. And so I, I want to think a little bit about that this evening with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, uh, and some of the, I guess you might call them lies, that often I think the evil one introduces to us as, as kind of attacks against that idea of, of unity and diversity in the church. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, down to probably verse 27 or so. Um, and before I read the text, I just kind of want to give you a little bit of an overlay of, of, of how we're going to approach this Body metaphor. This is one of the, the many metaphors for the church in the New Testament that is used by Paul and other authors. And it's, it's one of my favorites, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later uh, this evening. But this was a, a metaphor that, that Paul used for a church that was, I guess, dysfunctional is as good a word as any. Uh, a church that was living in, in, in many carnal ways, many unrighteous ways, but a church that Paul was thankful for. You can read chapter 1 and just be blown away by his thankfulness for this, this uh, divisive, um, uh, prideful group of, of Christians. Uh, they were a church in, in need of lots of corrections, and one of the many corrections they needed was, was really what they did when they gathered and how they related to one another. Um, even a few chapters before this, talks about their Lord's Supper gatherings and how some would basically push to the front of the line to get food at the table before others who needed it. I mean, it was just, a, it was just really a, um, a rotten place. Probably not a church if you visited today you'd go back to if you saw all that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, really in 13 to 14, he starts to address... Uh, the, the issues regarding their gatherings and what was taking place. And in chapter 12, um, we're not going to read the first 11 verses here, but these first 11 verses here in this, in this 12th chapter, he, he gives them a, a discourse and a reminder about spiritual gifts. We'll allude to it a little bit later. Uh, following, though, his reminder to them about the variety of gifts that are in the church, he begins to give them this powerful illustration of the body. I'm going to read it for you now, beginning in verse 12. He says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Or where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, or the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, but there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And you are the body of Christ, and you are individually members of it. Verse 12, 13, 14, and then down there in verse 27, the verse I just read is, is really the bracket of this metaphor. It is really the main point that Paul is wanting to address with the metaphor, that the body of Christ is a unified group of Christians, a unified group, but it is a diverse group. It's, each person is not like the other in how God has uniquely gifted that Christian for service. So 12, 13, 14, and then verse 27 are in many ways just saying the same thing. And then right in the middle of those verses, verse 15 to 26, Paul addresses some of the lies that often get into the church, specifically from those who don't feel like they're very useful to the church, or maybe over, overthink their usefulness to the church, enemies of unity, enemies of the design diversity that God gives. So we're going to focus on those three lies in just a few moments. But I want, to, I want to lay the foundation of verse 12 and 13 and 14 because we need to understand just the beauty of what God has made here. I mean, even in a group like this, uh, there is, for some of us who don't know each other, there is a fellowship that exists because of Jesus Christ that we don't really have to, I mean, we could work at developing relationships with one another and get to know each other, but it already exists because we're in the same body. That's God's work. That's the gospel itself. So let me lay the foundation for you a little bit. Verse 12, 13, and 14. Here's the main point that Paul gives us. In verse 12, when he says the body is one and it has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with the Christ or with Christ. It's a conclusion that, I, like I said a few minutes ago, he's, he's drawing from the verse 11 verses that talk about spiritual gifts. That as God designs the church, he comprises a whole body, but a body with many members. And this metaphor of the body, as I said, is a, is a great New Testament metaphor. You will find it in many places in Paul's writings, 32 times by my count. He uses this metaphor of the body. He uses it with the Romans and the Ephesians, and he uses it with... Um, the Colossians, just a few examples of that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he put all things at his Christ, put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. It belongs to him. In the Colossian church, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it tells us he's the head of that body, the church. That means Christ is the chief shepherd of the body, chief shepherd of the church, both locals and universal. So it's a, it's a body that he has designed. It's a body that he has brought people into from different places with different stories and different gifts. So it becomes a diverse group of people. It has many members, Paul says. Both people who are part of it and many kinds of people. One commentator has said that as the beauty of the human body is brought out by the variety of its parts, so the glory of Christ appears in the diversity of its members. So building from that in verse 13, he says there's one spirit that, that brings us into this body. We're all baptized into the one spirit. Not water baptism there, but spirit baptism, a one-time event. It, it appears in an, a, a tense in the original language that, that tells us this is a, a one-time thing happening. 
So, so when you're converted, we are baptized into the body. We are brought into, we are identified with that body. And the distinctions among us are now unified together in one functioning part. And all, Paul says, we're made to drink of this one spirit. Verse 13, and he says in verse 13, there are Jews and there are Greeks. There are slaves and there are free. And those are not just the only four categories. They're just simply uh, metaphors that, that, that the gospel is, is dis- has the distinction of reaching men and women from all kinds of places. For one body, verse 14, does not consist of just one member but of many. So when we talk about the church, we're not talking about one person. We're talking about many members, many different kinds of members, many different kinds of people. And what Paul understands here, and this is really the, the, where I want to spend the bulk of our time here this evening, what Paul understands is that the evil one will tempt us to think very differently from what we just read in verse 12 through 14. The evil one would, nothing, would like nothing more for us than to look out into this diverse group of people and maybe have envy about other people's gifts and, and what they're able to do that you're not able to do. Or think that, that in some ways that what you have been given by God is not as important as what that guy or that gal over there has been given. Or to think that that person's apparent lack of giftedness from your perspective is not enough to help you in your walk with the faith. So, so there's all kinds of lies that the evil one will try to, to hint at and deliver to us that will disrupt what is designed to be in the church, and that is unity and mutual appreciation and the one anothering that we talk about. That's really verses 15 to 26. Each of these lies are are meant to undermine the truth that the church exists in its diversity and meant for unity. So we're going to talk about three of them this evening, three different lies, three different enemies that work against this unity, that work against this diversity. The first lie we find in verses 15 to 20. I just simply stated it this way. It's the lie that you don't need me. You don't need me. Look at how he unpacks it with this metaphor. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. This is the lie. You don't need me. Like all three of these lies we're going to talk about, each of them can destroy a church's unity. Each of them can discourage even its people not to serve at all. If, it, if a church bought into this lie that they didn't need each other, spiritual gifts would begin to atrophy in a church. Ministries would die out or fade out. The impact that a church is desiring to have on its community would lessen and disappear. Pretty soon, a church might be selling its building and closing its bank accounts. That's how critical it is that we understand what these lies are and how to meet them. Paul says that a foot, a foot should never say that because it's not a hand, it's not needed. Or that it doesn't belong. Just because that foot has five toes and not five fingers doesn't mean that it should be thought of any less. And the same is true, he uses another part of the body, the ear. That ear should never say, well, I can't see anything, I only hear things. I can't visualize them, I'm not near as effective as the eye. I'm not needed in the body. 
Now that's the metaphor. Let, let's talk about maybe real life gifts. So the, there's a variety of spiritual gifts that we know of in the New Testament. Let me just illustrate it this way. <clears throat> a teacher, someone who has the gifts of teaching, shouldn't think he's useless because he's not strong in mercy. Or he's not very compassionate to those he teaches. Someone who's gifted in maybe giving should never think he's useless because he, he can't evangelize well or he doesn't know how to easily transition from one earthly conversation to a spiritual one. Someone who's very gifted in administration should never think he's useless because he can't minister to someone effectively on their deathbed. We all can't be evangelists. We all can't be administrators. We all can't be helpers and givers and all have the same capacity for each of these gifts. God gives them in a variety of ways and, and sometimes there are gifts that rise to, to certain strengths at different periods of your life. There's, there's fluctuation there, but we all can't have the same capacity for every spiritual gift. That would make us a non-diverse church. So, so no part of the body should ever conclude they're unnecessary to the rest of it just because they can't do things that someone else can do. I mean, I, I mean I've yet to meet a, a well-rounded Christian who has every spiritual gift functioning at highest level at all times. That just doesn't exist. We need each other in the church. We need people who are strong in areas where we are not as strong. I think this lie can come sometimes from a place where I think there's maybe good intentions, but we might have a, a skewed view of what makes a healthy church. We think that a good church is a church that you can come to on a Sunday morning and you can get some great teaching, a good sermon, and some stirring music, and a good welcoming committee, and you think that, that's enough for a healthy church. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than those things that happen in a service or, or what you do when you come in the front door for the first time. We know that because of the variety of gifts that God gives to the body. There are gifts that are needed for other parts of ministry. The church does not need me is a lie. The church does need you. If you are a Christian, you have gifts. You are needed. If you're an ear, we need you. If you're, if you're an eye, we absolutely need you. If you're, if you're a toe or a shoulder, we have to have you. Paul says in verse 17, he questions it, the lie this way. He says, if the whole body were an eye. I mean, just think about this. Visualize this. Use your sanctified imagination. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? I mean, imagine if you had a church of 100 people and every one of those people had a gift of teaching, a strong gift of teaching. Well, who would you decide and how would you decide who gets to teach and when with 100 teachers? Who decides what's going to be taught? How would you grow a church if that's all, the only gift you had was teaching? Imagine if that same group of, or a different group of 100 people was, they were only gifted in maybe giving. Uh, after they gave to the church in some way, maybe monetarily, financially, who would then decide where that money goes if they were only gifted in that area? Uh, imagine a church if, that, that was really gifted in, in, and you had just had people everywhere that, that were just very evangelistic. Always bringing new converts into the church, but there, you know, there, there was no one there to help them develop as new Christians to disciple them. Or imagine a church that only was administrative. I mean, 100 administrators, and that was it. I mean, whose ideas and, and, and whose ministries would they manage? Maybe they could steer a church in the right direction, but what about pastoring and casting vision for the body? See, you can't, you can't just have all eyes or all ears. 
You've got to have diversity. And God in his wisdom obviously knows this. That's why when you look at a church of 100 people, you never see the same person. You never see the same kind of giftedness. Again, I, I, one of the joys that I, I so appreciate um, when we interview people who are potential members of the church, we sit down with them as elders in our church, and we get to hear their testimony of salvation. We often ask them questions, and one of the questions that often comes up is, you know, what do you think your gifts are? How, how do you see yourself serving in this church? And nobody ever answers it the same way, because they they tend to know where their areas and their abilities are to help benefit and, and, and serve the body. And that's, that's the way God has designed it to be. Paul says in verse 18, But as it is, or because God doesn't create a church with the same people of all the same gifts, he says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. He arranged it differently. He, he gives the church a, a panorama of gifts. God arranged them. That, that also is a one-time event in the original language. He, he does this before the foundation of the world, we're told in Ephesians. He, he chooses. He, he, he makes, and, and, and makes the choice that, that some are going to be in the body of Christ. So, so Flint Hills Bible Church, I, when, when was the year Flint Hills was established? What year was that? Anybody know? 76? 1976. So, so 1976 was not the year that God decided... Here are going to be the people who are going to become members of this church. He did that before the foundation of the world. And he didn't decide in 1976, here are the the kinds of pastors and here are the kinds of teachers and here are the kind of administrators and staff and and people who set up chairs. That was all pre-foundation of the world stuff. He arranged it all. Each person, if you're part of this church, Flint Hills Bible... You're here because you not only have gifts, but you're here because God chose you before the foundation world for you to be saved and to use your gifts here at this chapter and season of your life. It's all been arranged. He says in a different way in verse 19, if, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So that lie just doesn't work. The church doesn't need me, doesn't work because God made the church this way. So it does work, and it should work, and we are needed. Each of us are needed. And, and, and you probably know and sense that when, when people that serve here regularly and faithfully aren't available, maybe, maybe even for very good reasons, they're away on a vacation, or, or maybe they have a, a time of bereavement where they're away for a while, not able to serve, and you feel their absence. You feel that ear missing that needs to be there that you appreciate and enjoy. The church doesn't mean me is, is a lie. There's a second lie in verses 21 and through 25, and it's sort of the other side of that coin. It's the lie, I don't need you. Not only is there the lie that I'm not needed, but now there's this one, I don't need you. So the eye, he says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I mean, again, you can use your sanctified imagination. It's almost, it's almost silly. I mean, this almost would make a good cartoon. If you just had one eyeball sitting on a table, what good is that eyeball? I mean, it can see around. It can look around and see uh, the dimensions of a room and, and inspect who's there and what's there. But if it were in danger, it couldn't go anywhere without feet, right? 
It just remains there. It needs other parts of the body. What could the eye do? It can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. It absolutely does need the hand to pick things up, to move things out of the way, to feel what something is like. And the same is true of the head. I mean, if you just had a brain, again, just sitting on a table, what good is that? It could, it could process things. It could think about things. But it, it couldn't tell parts of the body to do stuff, like we need to move now, or this hurts, that's pain. I mean, with no other parts of the body there, it, it just really becomes a useless part. It is in need of others. So it is a lie to say, I don't need you. I think about this a lot just as a, a teaching pastor. I get the joy of teaching often, but I know my gift is useless in an empty room. I kind of felt that a little bit in COVID when we were streaming like so many churches. And, um, you know, the first Sunday was kind of, I don't know if fun's the right word, but it was different, you know, getting up and there's like two or three people in the auditorium and I'm where I normally am preaching and there's a camera right there and kind of felt like a TV show. And I was like, all right, I'm on TV now. This is kind of cool. But I was quickly reminded, maybe even halfway through that first sermon, or at least by the second time we were doing that, that the gift of teaching feels a little empty when there's no one to teach. I mean, there's no one there to hear, no one there to listen. No one there, if you, if you have the gift of helps, what if you had the gift of helps and there was no one who ever shared a burden? I mean, you feel pretty useless. Who am I going to encourage today? Who am I going to go visit in the hospital if I don't know they're there? If the, nobody ever talks about what their needs are? If you had the, maybe the gift of discernment, no one's around. I mean, who, who are you going to guide? Who are you going to admonish? Who are you going to warn? If you have the gift of wisdom and no one's there, who, who are you going to share counsel with? One of my professors and masters said that the service of Jesus Christ is never a solo performance. No place remains for individualism. No matter how great and impressive one's abilities may be, his duty is to cooperate with other Christians. The body is one, not many, and God's plan has never been for his own to act as separate entities. So it's true that we are not lone rangers as Christians. We're more like a brand of brothers that work together, that depend on each other, that have each other's back. The idea that we don't need each other is really kind of maybe as old as Cain, Genesis chapter 4, who said he wasn't responsible for his brother. John Wesley said there's no such thing as solitary Christianity. Christian life is life in community in the fellowship of the spirit that we call the church. So this is a lie. This is a lie. I don't need you. I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The, the head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. And then Paul says, on the contrary, so here's the way you should be thinking. The parts of the body, verse 22, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not even require. So, so let me just kind of summarize maybe this language a little bit. He's saying that we, we can get to the point where we devalue or we dishonor parts of the body that we perceive to be not as important. Maybe they're less flashy, maybe they're, they're less showy, maybe they're more behind the scenes. This was a problem in the Corinthian church. The, the Corinthian church seemed to be preferring you know, showier gifts, those gifts like tongues that were obvious and public or, or teaching or prophecy and not giving honor and attention to those gifts that we might label today as behind-the-scenes gift. I would encourage you, uh, when you come here on Sundays, 
get in a regular basis and a regular habit of going up to the people who set up tables, who get the donuts out, who maybe pick up the donuts, who make the coffee, and thank them. Show them honor. Tell them how much you appreciate that, that chocolate sprinkled, you know, doughy ball that their kids get, you know, your kids get every morning and you get. Sometimes in the church we, we tend to rank spiritual gifts, showing more preference to certain kinds of gifts than others. I mean, we, we often, and maybe you do this at your church too, uh, church as well, but sometimes it, we've made note of the fact that, you know, a lot of times you, you only recognize people that are in the, you know, the sound booth or running media when something goes wrong. And you're kind of like, oh, what's wrong with the screen? What are they doing up there, you know? When 99 other Sundays out of, the, out of the year, everything's going perfect. We've got to get in the habit of, of not showing dishonor or not showing any kind of honor to those with these supposed gifts that we all kind of think are a little bit less important. And they're not. Uh, the, the metaphor that Paul is setting up tells us they're not. The ear needs the hand. The head needs the shoulder. Anybody who works and serves and ministers is worthy of honor, is worthy of being thanked. There's a, a story told about Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard it before. He was once approached by some college students that wanted to, uh, came to the church a little bit early on a Sunday, and, and he invited them into the building, and he offered to walk them around the building and give them a tour of the building a little bit. And um, It was a really hot day in, in London, and he began the tour downstairs. He took him to the basement first. Walked down to what was the, he called it the furnace room. And it wasn't a, a their first choice of places to go. It was muggy down there. It wasn't very well, uh, uh, there wasn't good airflow in the room. And but as they walked down the stairs, he was kind of walking quietly and almost tiptoeing and trying to be extra quiet as they moved their way down the stairs to the basement. And they opened the door and and lo and behold, there's hundreds of people, at least according to the story, about 700 people that were on their knees in prayer, praying, just simply praying for the day, praying for Spurgeon, praying for the ministries of the church. He called it the furnace room because of that activity. And he acknowledged to these college students that had come for this tour, he, he really just more or less said, this is, this is why this church is what it is. It's a praying church. Here are these people in the basement. Nobody knows they're here. And they're just praying, and they're just praying, and they're just seeking the Lord's face. Uh, I think Paul, with that illustration, would have said, don't forget to honor those in the furnace room. Don't, don't forget to honor those who are in less than honorable places behind the scenes. Don't perceive them as less important than you. This I don't need you is a, is a lie. You, you really devalue the image of God in that person and the specific gifts that that person has been given. So, so we continue to read in verse 24 that God has so composed the body, he's given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that needed it, but there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care. So, so he's wanting to bring us together, regardless of gift, regardless of on stage or in the kitchen, to bring us together. So there's mutual honor, mutual respect, mutual care. Remember the... Remember the um, in the Old Testament, remember in Exodus chapter 18, Moses, Moses and Jethro, remember that account and that 
conversation that had, they had. Moses had just got out of Egypt with the Hebrews and he had sent for his wife and his kids to come and join him and his father-in-law Jethro comes and he brings the, the rest of the family to Moses and we're told the very next day after they arrived, here's Moses and he's filling his role as leader. He's a leader of several million Hebrews in the wilderness now. And they're coming to him daily with disputes and conflicts. I mean, a pastor with no associate pastors, really, of a couple million people in the desert. And trying to, trying to counsel them, trying to help them, trying to shepherd them. And Jethro says, what are you doing? Let me just read some of the text for you. Uh, he says, what is this that you're doing for the people? Verse 14. Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? I mean, the lines aren't getting any shorter. And Moses says, because they come to seek me to seek God's will. Well, that's a decent answer. That's what they're doing. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between parties and I inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So Jethro gives them this answer. Well... What you're doing is not good. You and all these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle alone. Listen now to me. I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they're to live and how they are to behave. So that's kind of the, this is your call. This is your pastoral call. But... Select capable men. Go and find some qualified men, some elder-like men from the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So flocks of people. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. Bring, have them bring every difficult case, the ones they can't figure out, to you. That will make your load lighter, Jethro said, because they share it with you. If you do this and God, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. So you'll have people who, who at the end of the day, whether they're still at the end of the line, are going home to another angry night with their wife in the tent and haven't had their conflict resolved. This passage is more, it's not as much about delegation, although that's really what he's telling Moses to do. But it's also about telling Moses, Moses, you need to humble yourself. You need to train up some other men and find those men who are capable of helping and share the load. Give other people the opportunity. Give, give those who have gifts to serve. Don't live and buy into the lie that I don't need help. A pastor of two million people, you need lots of help. Paul says here in this text that God so composed the church this way. That word composed comes out of a, an ancient Greek art world um, area where, where painters would mix colors to get a more precise shade of paint. So God merges and molds the church in such a way and he puts that diversity and that beautiful tapestry together so that ministry and purpose can be shared and united. That's how God has designed the church. So they're are two lies so far in this text that we want to avoid. I have no need of you, and you have no need of me. And that comes to a third lie, which I think really is maybe an outflow of the first two. It piggybacks off the first two. It's really just in verse 26. It's the lie that you have no effect on me. Kind of like I can do without you, or what you offer me really does not deliver. 
I, I love the beautiful words here in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. No one suffers alone. No, no one should ever suffer or rejoice alone. When one hurts in the church, we all should feel it on some level. When one is enthused, we should share in their happiness. How does Paul say it in another book? Romans chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with those who are lowly. That's the cost and the reward of being a part of the family of God. I, I love to talk to our people about the ministry of presence. Just, just being there and being available for someone. How, how important is that in the church? When you minister to each other, when you nurture those friendships, their life becomes your life. So when they have a loved one who dies, you lament with them, you grieve with them, you hurt with them. I... My dad died a few years ago, um, somewhat suddenly. He had got COVID and had, was in bad health. And, um, and there were a lot of, lot of moments in the, the week or so leading up to his death that were very emotional. And even though he was a faithful pastor and godly Christian man, there was no reason to grieve his passing in the sense of where he was going. But, but you know, when, when you have a, a person with that kind of effect, that kind of influence not only your life but the life of a, a church he pastored for 50 years and there's obviously a void there's a huge void there's a spiritual void there's a discipleship void there's a fatherly void there's obviously a husband void and one of the one of the memories that I reflect on the most happened at his service and it was not a unique thing I'd never really been on in this part of a service, I've conducted many funerals, and I've been at services where loved one dies, but I've never really had that one as close to me die. And so we had decided to do a receiving line. You probably know what those are. After the service is over, you sometimes get a, a collection of family or maybe the large family, and you sometimes it's at the front of the church, sometimes it's out in the hallway, but you kind of stand in a line, and, and people who have gathered for the funeral kind of walk by and and shake hands or give you hugs or, you know, however they want to greet you and express their sorrow. And I didn't really think at all about this part of the service. I just knew it was something my mom wanted to do, and so we did it. And the thing that really moved me the most during that, those minutes that it was taking place was how many people had tears already before they got to each member of our family and into me, and, they, and, and as they hugged and embraced in some way that they were already grieving. They were already as sad as I was. They, they were already feeling the, the weight and the loss. And there was, a, there was an intimacy in a, in, that I felt with those different individuals that gave me a hug and tears. And I, I've, I've told the specific people, his funeral was in Tulsa. And uh, there was a handful of people from my church that came down. And I didn't expect really hardly any of our people to come down from our church in a good number did and I told them like I, I will never forget you being there I'll never forget the ministry of presence on that day of you being there and hugging me with your tears and leaving you know wet spots on my shirt as I cried on your shoulder if one member suffers we all suffer together and the opposite is also true if one member is honored all rejoice together 
when we hear the news of someone getting engaged that's going to be married, two great Christian people coming together, and we rejoice when you hear someone is pregnant, someone has been gifted by God, the, the, the gracious gift of life, and they're going to bring someone into this world or multiples into this world. It's a time of rejoicing. When, we, uh, when I was in Tulsa, we, the last church that, that I was a part of before I moved to Wichita was a church that my dad and I helped plant. And when we started out, it was like 10 or 15 of us in the living room. That was, that was the size of our church on day one. And so when someone got pregnant, it was like we were, we were happy as can be for a lot of reasons. It was like the new church growth idea, you know, get pregnant. But that kind of became the culture of our church. I mean, you know, anybody who's been a part of that church before knows that. There's just a, there's a family rejoicing. There's a family lamenting. That's the way God designed the church to be. He designed it to be a place where our gifts have an effect, where our lives have an effect. And if you feel a little bit of that, that's not my experience. I mean, there's a lot of reasons it could be that way. Maybe it is just simply that you haven't really taken a step towards building relationships with people, maybe haven't gotten involved on a level of serving in some way, and or maybe you're simply new to the church. There's a lot of reasons that you might be filling that void, but, but that ought to be your aim to get to the part where verse 26 becomes just kind of a, a life experience for you in the, in the body. We, we can't buy into the lie that people don't have an effect on us. They do and they should. When people are gone on a on a Sunday morning and, you know, stand up here, I'm sure Dave and others of you have ever taught before have this experience when you stand up in front of a congregation and you look out and many people obviously sit in their normal places and kind of take a mental attendance of who's there and who's not there. It's always a blessing when you see people there, people there regularly. They have effect on me as a teacher. They have an effect on others who sit around them. Verse 27 is just a repeat of all this. You are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And we're individually members of it. So we're, we're given a uniqueness, a diversity of, of ways that we act as, as members within the church. So, so there's no one member who can claim he's the most important or the whole of the church or if that person leaves or dies, what will we ever do? Uh, there will be a void maybe immediately, but... But other people step into the role. The church is bigger than a man. It's bigger than one woman. So let me give you just a couple kind of concluding ideas from these lies in this text. Now that we've seen Paul talk about the, the, the beloved unity that we can enjoy. The diversity that exists. It's, it's a little bit like an oxymoron, you know, if you think about it. That we can be both different and together on things you know an oxymoron when you put two words together that seemingly contradict like a like jumbo shrimp or something like that we are one and we are diverse it's a little bit oxymoronic but that is what we are here's one lesson from the text or maybe one application i would encourage you to learn to accept the variety of gifts in the church Learn to accept the variety of gifts. There are varieties of gifts. If we took the time in this very chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 and 6, you'll see a variety there. Gifts, services, activities. Verse 7, I think, tells us that, that we have even a unique blending of those things. So I don't often tell people you have a spiritual gift. You have multiple gifts. Maybe some are stronger than others. There's a variety of ways that you can use them. 
And we're all different parts of that body. We've seen that a number of times in this text already. And that is how an all-wise God designed the church. So don't negate others as less important than yourself. Don't over-elevate those who maybe have showier gifts. All of our gifts and giftings and talents and abilities and ways that we serve and build others up are important. We need each other's contributions. So love the variety. Love, love especially, and I try to pray about this a lot from my own heart, love people who are especially strong in areas that you, that you lack and that you're weak in. Sometimes when I... I envy others. I try to remind myself that, that God in his providence and his sovereignty has, has given certain gifts to people because he knows they'll be good stewards of them. Maybe I'm not one of those people. So learn to accept the variety of gifts. Number two, beware of spiritual gifts envy. This, this can come when a hand thinks it needs to be a foot. Or I'd better be used as a, as a shoulder or an ear. Maybe we look at other Gifts that we don't have and we start coveting their fruitfulness, their enabling. I can see how maybe someone who's a, maybe more gifted in, in, a, in an area where they don't serve up front and they're not, they're not really getting a lot of accolades and public recognition might, might be a little bit jealous of the person on stage who's leading in music or preaching week in and week out and gets feedback and comments and Maybe coveting at a platform that we don't have. Maybe looking at others with even the same gift. And sometimes I look at other teachers and preachers. In fact, most teachers and preachers I look at that I admire. And why can't I be that effective? Why can't I be that clever? We want to be careful and avoid spiritual gifts envy. God has given you exactly what you need to be a blessing to everyone. He's given you every ounce of giftedness you need to influence somebody to be more like him. And number three, this may be a little bit obvious, but whatever your gifts are, exercise them, develop them, strengthen them. Don't, don't overcomplicate if you don't know what your gifts are. There's not a magical formula here. I mean, it's, I usually tell people in our church that, that ask that question, how do I want to know what my gifts are? I usually just tell them, serve somewhere and watch what God does. I mean, I think there's other things you can do. You could... You can ask others to help you affirm or confirm maybe areas of giftedness. What are your desires? Where's the fruitfulness? I mean, there's other questions you can ask, but exercise something. Serve in some way. I, um, back to the church planting days uh, when we were planting that, that church some years ago, uh, there was a point in which I mean, everyone, everyone goes through this if you're a church that size trying to, trying to grow where you, you serve in areas you know you're not gifted, but somebody has to do it. And so for a season of time, I got to lead music. And I tell you what, it was, it was a disaster. I wish there were video so you could show to every seminary student of how not to lead music. But that's kind of what I did for months. I was asked to lead music, and I didn't know what to do. We didn't have any instruments at the time. We had nobody who could play anything. So I thought it, I, thought I had this clever idea. So I went to a local uh, Christian bookstore and I found a bunch of uh, accompaniment CDs with, with worship songs and hymns and I thought, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll just, we'll just go back to the church and I'll put these in and I'll have them play it and we'll just kind of sing along to the tracks and it'll all be beautiful. We'll sound like this big choir and it'll just be marvelous. So I got up there the first Sunday and kind of explained how all this was going to go and, um, and I, then, I, then I just made this weird comment. I said, just pretend it's like you're singing in the shower. 
And it was like, people are like, what? What, what, is, what does the shower have to do anything with that? What I was trying to do was, was communicate, you know, just don't, don't think about it, don't worry about people around you. We'll just, you know, we'll just make the most of this. And, you know, we seem to be uninhibited, those of us like to sing in a shower. So just do it that way. Well, nobody followed my lead. We could never keep up uh, with, the, with the track. We were either behind or we were out in front. And, and I couldn't pick songs that lead from one to the other. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it, things like, you know, notes and chords. Lead. I didn't, don't, still don't know what a note and chord is, but how, they're, you know, how they work together. It was just disaster week after week after week. And I remember eventually my dad said, I think I'm going to find something else for you to do. I was like, yeah, that's good. But I had to do that. I mean, I kind of felt like I had to try that in some senses, and I'm not gifted there. I, I don't have that enabling. I, I can't, and I don't think that way. But as Christians, again, just to remind you, you have something or some things for the benefit and the blessing of the church. So exercise them, develop them, strengthen them, whatever your gifts are. Learn from others who do it. Maybe read books on, on those levels of giftedness so you can learn from others who've also had the same gifts so you can grow in that gift. Not just kind of be the same kind of administrator or giver or teacher, but you can develop that more and more and more. Paul told Timothy not to neglect his gift. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. So an admonition that Jerry Bridges gives in his book on fellowship. He says, the person, quote, with the gift of teaching must study zealously to learn God's truth and must then labor diligently to communicate it in a clear and inspiring manner. He says the person with the gift of service must strive to become competent and proficient in his particular area of service in order to ensure that the results of his labors reflect a standard of excellence that glorifies God. He says there's no place for either shoddy teaching or shoddy service in God's kingdom. The believer with the gift of mercy must study how to use it, that gift in a way that best relieves the sufferings and miseries of others. The person who has the gift of leadership must study the principles of leadership in order to use that gift most effective. And then as Paul said, he must govern diligently. He says simply having a spiritual gift does not mean we can automatically fulfill our function in the body Without diligent effort, without exercising, without neglecting or not neglecting it. So the church is really a beautiful place where service takes place in a variety of ways. But the uniqueness that each of us have as Christians, we have an opportunity to live against and counter to all these lies, to, to show appreciation to others that you do have an effect on me. You are important to me. I do need you, and I believe that my gifts are, are also for your benefit. You want to be a blessing. I hope I, that's really a, a simple way to think about it. Each time you gather with each other, whether it's a Sunday or a Friday night, let me go praying before you. Lord, may, may I just simply be a blessing to people. May, may they be happy they interacted with me today. And may I be happy that I interacted with them. One of my, one of my trips overseas, one time I got to spend a few days in, in London uh, by myself. And um, one of the things I wanted to do when I was in London was visit uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is um, historically where Charles Spurgeon had pastored. It's a different building now because of the bombing in World War II, but... You can still visit there today and see many things that are, uh, have been historically a part of the church. So I went to visit on a Sunday, and I mean, it's a, kind of a funny story, but 
Um, I mean, I was, I was in shorts and a backpack, and it's a very formal church. It's especially on a Sunday morning, people, teenagers, suits, ties. I mean, I, I'm sure I stood out as someone who needed help. But um, anyway, I got there, and they, they were, couldn't be more gracious and hospitable and loving and accepting and obviously clearly wanting to be a blessing to visitors, and they were to me. And um, So after the service was over, one of the members who I had met offered to walk me around the church and just show me around. I was like, great, that's kind of why I'm here. And so um, just gave me a tour of different things and took me down to the bookstore, which I think was in the basement, um, and uh, he offered to buy me a book. He said, just pick a book. I'd love to bless you today and send you home with a book. So, you know, I'm looking for something by Spurgeon. I mean, why, why would you buy anything else? And i um, looking for books I didn't have, and I found this rack where there's a, a collection of, of smaller books, and there was one book that kind of stood out to me. It was called The Suffering Letters, and I didn't, didn't know what this was, so I, I looked at the back of the book, and you might know at the end of Spurgeon's life, he, he had a lot of physical maladies that really kept him from, from literally preaching on Sunday mornings, and he, he spent many months at home in bed on Sunday mornings, but he, he wrote letters to the congregation in his absence to be a blessing to them while he suffered on a Sunday morning. He wanted his letters read publicly and so this book was a collection of these letters and I was like gold you know that's what I want so I got this book and I was reading a series of uh, um, on the plane ride home some of the things that he had said to his congregation and in typical Spurgeon fashion there's some humor in this quote I'm about to read but there's really a rich truth here too He, he said in one of his letters to the congregation about service he said those who are not working bees usually turn into dead flies. And they spoil the sweetest ointments by the pot full at a time. He said, may no one in the church sink into such a wretched condition. Far rather, may we be so blessed as to become blessings all around. What a good way to think about church. Good way to think about gathering. A good way to think about being around other Christians, that I'd be a blessing all around, that people would be thankful and I would be thankful that we were together. That is what the Corinthian church was really missing out on. They were overlooking one another's gifts. They were overlooking one another's importance. They were over-elevating some and showing dishonor to others. May that not be with us, men. May that not be with us. May we set the example in our in our church and our churches, uh, leadership, exemplary leadership of, of expressing thankfulness and gratefulness to those who serve among us and leading by example and, and taking a step towards that person who feels a little bit disvalued and, and thanking them for using their gifts and us ourselves being active, being uh, forthright and showing energy to, to use our gifts to make sure others are ministered to effectively. May we show the church by our example as men how we can be not just working bees, but as Spurgeon says, blessings all around to others. Father, to that end, as we ask for your help, Lord, in practice, I think we all can probably think of ways that we could take the truths of these texts and help um, uh, apply them to our areas of service and ministry. There's some quick things I know that we can do to to be more grateful, uh, to be more helpful, to be more encouraging, 
to make more of an effort, Lord, to, to come alongside those who are even rejoicing and lamenting and join them in those various emotional responses to life's events. But there's also a need for us to develop the compassion and eyes of Christ, to have long-term, heartfelt commitment to serve and be a blessing to other people, to have it be a, a habit of our lives that when we come together with others who are different from us but in the same body, uh, to have it a, a, a habitual commitment that today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help my brothers and sisters in some way. I'm going to make sure that they are, they are encouraged and, and, and moved on just a little bit closer to being like your son, Jesus Christ. That takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of creativity, Lord. And really, I just pray for all of us that we would, we would have a mindset of developing or cultivating that habit of service. It's a beautiful church that you have designed. It's a church that we could not bring the same kind of people together because we don't have the power to save. We certainly don't have the power to unite in the spirit as you do. So Lord, may we not blow it. May we, may we reflect this beauty and diversity, this oneness with one another and, and how we represent ourselves before our families and our church body as we go forward as men and lead uh, and endeavor to lead the charge of of how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we prefer one another. We thank you for your word and its clarity on subjects like this. Remind us so often, especially in the New Testament, of how we can specifically serve one another. Just pray for my brothers here at Flint Hills Bible Church. I'm thankful for them and the testimony they are to so many of us outside this church when we gather here for conferences and enjoy the hospitality and enjoy the, the serving of us. Thank you for the examples that they have here, the training and the modeling that's taken place. But we pray that you would continue to expand their ministry amongst us. You continue to, to bear fr- help them bear fruit of, of this commitment to humbly love those in their midst. We pray for their testimony here in this community this city, this university, that people would come to know the truth, that people would come to know your son, Jesus Christ, that people would come to know the distance and the need for reconciliation, the distance from you that they have because of their sin, and they would learn about your son, our Savior, our Lord. We just pray that you would use this church to have a profound influence in this part of Kansas, in this town and with so many others. Thank you for its leadership. Thank you for its men and its women and its young people who are serving and desiring to grow in their service. We simply pray that they would continue to be the case, that they would excel still more. And thank you for your word this evening. Thank you for its convicting effect, Lord, its instructive effect. It's bringing to us alive these concepts in new ways. We thank you for the creativity of the text and the illustrations in the text that help us perhaps see one another in a different light. Help us not to take advantage of one another in any way. Help us to be appreciative for how you have built and designed the church. Thank you for being all wise, and thank you for doing it this way in Christ's name. Amen.